It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Journalist and New York Times op-ed columnist Thomas Friedman says the global coronavirus pandemic is changing the future for countries around the world. Once we return to a version of normal, how devastating will the death toll be? What will the global economy look like? Will our political systems be changed? The key to reaching this new normal, he says, is a vaccine. We're now in an abnormal world. Um, I think we're going to go to the new abnormal, and ultimately, let's hope we get to the normal. So what will the new abnormal look like if we if we actually are able to ultimately at least suppress this and resume some form of normal commerce and daily life? Aspen Ideas to Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held by the Society of Fellows at the Aspen Institute. Countries around the world are undergoing a stress test thanks to the spread of COVID-19. Best-selling author Thomas Friedman says this test is revealing the quality of nations' governance, their healthcare systems, and the strength of their communities. Maybe surprisingly, some autocratic regimes have fared well, he says, while some democracies, like the United States, have not. Friedman examines how the virus has impacted countries and cultures differently. And he looks toward the future, making a prediction about what best-case scenario leadership might look like in America after the November election. He sits down with Elliot Gerson for this online conversation. Gerson is an executive vice president at the Aspen Institute. So let's start with geopolitics and particularly something that you've often written about, Tom, and that's U.S. global leadership. Uh, What does American leadership look like now during this global catastrophe? And what do you think it will look like when we emerge? And Uh, I'd like you to, in particular, comment about uh, that leadership vis-a-vis China. Uh, China is now sending ventilators, masks, uh, and other protective equipment to Europe, developing countries all around the world. We don't even have enough for ourselves. So talk to us a little bit about the U.S. leadership position we led in the Ebola crisis. What does it look like now, and what do you foresee? Well, let me just make a first a general observation, Elliot, and then we'll talk about how American leadership is or isn't, you know, uh, fitting into that. You know, in the 2008 financial crisis, Warren Buffett famously observed, when the tide goes out, you see who's wearing a bathing suit. Um, and I would say the same applies to this crisis, um, only at a much broader scale, that um, what this global pandemic reveals is many things. It reveals the quality of your governance, the quality of your healthcare system. The strength of your social compact, strength of your communities, the amount of social trust in your society, the health of your companies. And what you see around the world is this incredible stress test, which we talked about in 2008, applying to banks, now broadly applying to almost every aspect of every society. And what you see is that um, there are autocratic governments that have actually managed quite well. Uh, I point to the UAE, for instance, seem to have been very far ahead on this. And autocratic governments that have really fumbled, Turkey um, and Egypt, for instance, have really struggled here. Uh, Egypt uh, arrested and, in effect, evicted a Guardian reporter for reporting um, that the government's data on coronavirus spread there was erroneous. So those are really bad responses. Um, 
you see democracies that have, I think, responded very well. Denmark. Uh, you see democracies that have struggled. Our own. Uh, you see sort of autocratic regimes like Singapore, Hong Kong. You know, regimes in between sometimes doing very well. And so, um, what this stress test is revealing is one: the quality of your government governance and social contract. It's also revealing things about culture. I wrote about this in my first column. Uh, my friend Michelle Gelfand from the University of Maryland writes about tight and loose cultures. Tight cultures are you know, tend to be obedient, rule-abiding, uh, orderly. Uh, loose cultures, um, uh, you know, less so in every regard. And tight cultures do very well and are doing very, for the most part, doing well in this crisis. We see that uh, with the Asian countries. Loose cultures, Italy, the United States, much less so. So to talk about American leadership, it has to be in that broad context of how this problem is manifesting itself. Now, historically, what did we always uh, count on in terms of American leadership? What did the world count on? They count on three things. One, we would lead. We would organize whatever response uh, there was. Uh, the second is we would help. We would provide aid and comfort to people um, or, or military support in the case of World War One, World War Two, And third, that we would be a source of scientific knowledge, uh, the best scientific knowledge in the world. And I would say we are missing in action on all three. Uh, we have not led. Um, uh, Trump's most boastful uh, act is that he he um, you know stopped the incoming flights from China, but um, it was very much uh, you know every person for themselves, every country for themselves. Um, we certainly haven't led as a government uh, in terms of the scientific response. And on aid, uh, we are a taker, not a donor. Uh, we are a seeker of aid, and so. Um, what will all this mean? And the you know, I, I divide the world between AC and BC before Corona and after Corona because this is we are living through a seminal event, and it will change many many things. Um, I hope it's over sooner so it changes fewer things, but it will change many things. And what American leadership will look like after this, Elliot? I I simply don't know. It will depend in what shape we are as a country to help ourselves, let alone help anyone else and um, uh, how the world looks. I would be a little careful though about sort of passing off global leadership to China yet. There's a, there's a little bit of trolling going on with the Chinese, you know, uh, we're giving you aid, they, they kind of like that. Um, they've, got, they've got huge problems themselves, they've got huge challenges themselves. So, um, you know, right now it's kind of a leaderless world. So let's just go to some of the countries you mentioned as we, we move around looking at the incredible implications of this. You mentioned Spain and Italy, for example, and they're both, uh, you know, suffering catastrophic and heartbreaking losses. Uh, Europe generally, uh, you know, Brexit seems like it was eons ago, another yeah. century. But, you know, UK started late now in, in lockdown. Germany, for some reason, has a much lower death rate than other countries. What do you see happening post-crisis in, in Europe? Do you see greater unity, greater disunity? Well, the only salvation ultimately would be greater unity because uh, the EU came together for reasons of geopolitical and geoeconomic logic that, that do not go away. Geopolitically, this was a continent that plunged itself into two world wars. And that was the original reason for coming together um, in the in the small EU and then ultimately expanding it. And economically, they're the world's biggest market um, and have a common currency. And they can only grow their way out of that if they don't break that up, I, I would argue, ultimately. So I don't see that really changing so much. You know, the 
the real question is like, we're now in an abnormal world. Um, I think we're going to go to the new abnormal and hope ultimately let's hope we get to the normal. So what will the new abnormal look like if we, if we actually are able to ultimately at least suppress this and resume some form of normal commerce and daily life? Um, uh, I think that that is a world that where between the new normal will require a vaccine. Uh, sorry, a normal world will require a vaccine. Um, to get from where we are, this abnormal world, to a vaccine world is to require a bridge, and that will be technological. So um, just as after 9-11, the big question was, I want to know that your picture on your ID matches your ticket because I want to know if you're sitting next to me you're on an airplane, you're not a terrorist. Um, in the uh, post-crisis moment, as we get out of this crisis and try to get to a new abnormal, I'm going to want to know your health record. Um, I don't want to sit next to you on a bus. I don't want to sit next to you at a restaurant. I don't want to sit next to you on an airplane without uh, being assured that um, uh, I I you're not a carrier of the virus, not not a terrorist, that you're a carrier of the virus. That's what I'm going to want to know now. And um, we're seeing an explosion right now as we speak of digital apps. Um, there are already people who are involved in apps. Uh, I think it's called Kins is one of them, where where um, uh, their temperature is taken and sent to the cloud every day. I think that's going to get really refined. I think it will involve tracking. I think there will be huge civil liberties questions over this, just as there were after 9-11 about tracking your phone and, and tracking um, uh, people coming into the country. But we're headed for, I would argue, a huge civil liberties tracking debate. That is the only way we can get from uh, shelter in place to a world of vaccine and still be able to function uh, because they'll, it's going to require a level of trust. Uh, who are you? Uh, what, is, uh, what is your temperature? Hmm. That will be a new greeting. Let, let's just talk for a second about Russia in the new abnormal. Just 10 days ago, Putin said he, everything was under control. Obviously, it wasn't. Their, their crisis is accelerating. What, what, what should we be concerned about there with respect to, for example, disinformation, taking advantage of global vulnerability, cybersecurity? Well, you know, let me put this again in a, in a broader context because the, the, this virus hit in a broader context. What was the broader context? So the broader context was um, after after uh, World War II, the world broke up actually into 190 different nation states. Now, that actually was never how the world was governed. Um, if you think about it historically, the world was historically governed for millennia by empires, Greek Empire, Roman Empire, Mongol Empire, Ottoman Empire, British Empire, etc. And um, it was only after decolonization, World War I, World War II, we broke up into 190 different countries. And the 50 years after World War II were a fantastic time to be a weak little country. Oh, my God, if you were a weak little country, that was your era. Why? First of all, there are two superpowers throwing money at you, uh, sending you foreign aid, uh, sending you wheat, um, educating your kids at Patrice Lumumba University in Moscow or Wichita State in America. Um, you could be Syria and lose three wars to Israel and get your army rebuilt for free all three times. Okay. It was a good world. Okay. Number one. Number two, populations were very moderate. Number three, climate change was very moderate. Number four, no one had one of these things uh, to, to uh, check on the leader next door, let alone the country and see Paris. And lastly, China was in, not in the World Trade Organization. So everybody could be in the low-wage textile business. My argument is all that flipped in the early 20th cent 21st century. Now, no superpower wants to touch you because all they win is a bill. 
you know, no, 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 thanks. We don't do that anymore. Number one. Number two, um, uh, climate change is now hammering some of these countries. Three, populations have exploded in many of them in the developing world. Four, everyone has a cell phone and they have human trafficking apps on them now. And lastly, China's in the World Trade Organization, so nobody could be in the textile business. So before the pandemic hit, what was happening is a lot of these weak little states were actually beginning to fray and fracture, and they were hemorrhaging their people. In our hemisphere, it was Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. Uh, across the ocean, it was Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, the Middle East, Syria, Libya. We cracked some of them. Some of them just cracked on their own. And what this was doing was dividing the world into a world of order and a world of disorder. And the biggest geopolitical thing happening in the world was people trying to get out of the world of disorder into the world of order, fundamentally changing the politics of the world of order, creating all these populist nationalist backlashes. So that was going on on the eve of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, what it is going to do is absolutely exacerbate that problem. States that were fracturing could literally dissolve. What's going to happen in a place like Syria? Um, the only hope for these places is going to be herd immunity. There's no hospital. People don't even, in many places, they have clean water to wash their hands, let alone find a doctor. By the way, it's going to be a huge problem in a place like India. Crowded. Modi sent everybody home to the villages. Again, no, no doctors, no, no ability to wash hands consistently. Very crowded. So I'm really worried that um, this kind of post-1945 um, world, there's a lot of states that may, if this goes on, if they can't survive the herd immunity, which is, which is going to be just terrible and tragic, which is basically everybody gets it once about 60% of the population gets it, they have herd immunity, but the elderly, the, the, the immune weak are just going to die because there will not be medical services for them. It's going to incredibly stress out these states. And therefore, the movement from the world of disorder to the world of order, I think, will be amplified. And by the way, the world of order ain't in such great shape right now. So we're going to have to go through that phase before we can really think of what is the new Europe look like. So let's just continue a little bit about about the, these trends and what they're going to mean. And, and yes, the consequences could be catastrophic for what you describe as the weaker countries, countries with poor health infrastructure and the like. Uh, but you've also talked about nationalism and uh, autocracy and strong governments. Uh, what we're going to have post-crisis is going to be beyond just pandemic. We're also going to be in a deep recession or possibly worse with long consequences. And you think about the Great Depression, you know, it led to FDR, but it also led to Hitler. How do you see this all developing in terms of what we've seen recently in the rise of nationalism and illiberalism and autocracy, those trends against the liberal democratic uh, 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 regimen and, 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 and structure that, you know, we cherish in the West. How do you see that's going to play out? So um, I was uh, got up early this morning. I was watching CNBC's Squawk Box because I want to see the unemployment numbers. And um, they came out at 830. And before they came out, they said the consensus estimate among economists was, I think it was 3.1 million you know, new filings for unemployment came in at over six, 6.6 million. That's, that's just a staggering number. Um, and so a debate that started and that I was actually involved in early on in the first weeks of this, I think is going to come roaring back in the next uh, week or so. And 
Um, unfortunately, the way, because when the president jumped into it, he did it, frankly, in a crude way. And so it, the debate got um, presented as um, economy versus a health. Uh, the debate is how do we maximize both? How do we have a strategy here which allows us to save uh, as many people as we can in the near term, quarantine as many people who will be vulnerable, the elderly and the immune compromised for the long term, but begin to phase back into the economy as quickly as possible on the basis of testing so we can get the economy back going again. Elliot, that, that debate is going to explode um, in, the next, uh, in the next few days, I would argue, given these figures, because companies are just going to be going under uh, your, your local shop, whether it's your dry cleaner, your favorite restaurant. And this is just going to be terrible. So, and it's a, it's an excruciating choice, you know. Um, so uh, that's that, that's going to shape a lot of it. Now, what what I would say is this politically, um, what my hope is. I can just tell you what my hope. I would never venture a prediction. You know, Joe Biden has said he intends to appoint a woman um, as vice president, and Lord knows that's a it's a wonderful sentiment. Um, uh, but I think he should have a different priority. I think he needs to appoint a, Dem a Republican as vice president. I'll tell you why. So, and I'll, if it's a Republican woman, even better, okay? But he needs to appoint a Republican. I'll tell you why. So I uh, follow Israeli politics very closely. And I've had a saying for a long time that the Israeli, that the Israeli uh, Arab conflict is to wider trends in civilization what off-Broadway is to Broadway. Well, I always follow what's going on there because it comes to Broadway, starting with airline hijacking and suicide bombing and building a wall. I can give you a lot of examples. What's playing off-Broadway right now? Uh, an Israeli national unity government, a polity that was deeply divided politically, so divided it had to go through three elections and still couldn't form a government. And in the end, Benny Gantz, um, the leader of the opposition, uh, basically said, for sake of God and country, I'm going to join this government with Bibi Netanyahu. I believe we are going to need a Lincoln-like um, uh, team of rivals, a national unity government with a Republican vice president, because the fight over equity after the smoke clears from this, and God knows, I, I, Lord, I hope it's soon, but can you imagine the fight over who got and who gets bailed out and who didn't. And if that ends up as a blue-red fight, um, story in Politico yesterday that Trump sent all a bunch of ventilators to Florida, you know, uh, because uh, someone was quoted in the article from the White House in Politico saying that's because Florida is important for his reelection. Can you imagine what this country, will you want to see civil war? We are headed for an incredible fight over who gets bailed out and how. And we have to do this as a country with a national unity government as equitably as we possibly can. That's why I would love to see Joe Biden name his team of rivals right now or as soon as possible or well before you know the election. Um, and it's gotta be the, the best of the best. Um, uh, you know, I live in Maryland and our government here, Larry Hogan has been fantastic. He's a Republican. I voted for him. Uh, he's done a wonderful job ahead of the curve. And um, I don't know who it is, and if there's a Republican woman, even better. But we need a national unity government when this is over. And that's why Donald Trump must not be reelected, because every instinct in his body, every natural instinct is to lie, divide, and impugn expertise. And it's only barely suppressed right now. Um, and if we have four years of him 
trying to manage this kind of social stress, it will be a nightmare. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I think everybody at this time of where we've seen such hyper-partisanship and vitriolic politics and red-blue and, and urban-rural divide, I think all of us are looking for unity in a way we may never have before. You mentioned expertise or science, and you know, obviously we all know how much you've written about climate change and the existential threat that poses. I wonder if you could just say a few words about the the what this crisis has meant toward attitudes toward science and expertise and if there are any lessons there or anything that portends about how in the post-corona world the world is going to look at the climate change crisis well in my column yesterday you know i i, I dug up a quote from trump in 2018 after um you know the entire u.s government climate team plus 300 experts outside um gave the president a report um, uh, on the devastating effects of climate change that are in our future. And he was asked um, afterwards um, uh, what he thought about it. He said, I don't believe it. Um, and asked if he'd read it, he said, some. Well, that same attitude toward climate change was, excuse me, present in the run-up to this coronavirus crisis. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's a complete... Um, uh, ignoring of uh, the power of Mother Nature and natural systems. And that's why I quoted in my column yesterday my teacher and friend, Rob Watson, who um, uh, always likes to say Mother Nature is just chemistry, biology, and physics. That's all she is. You can't talk her up. You can't talk her down. You can't say, Mother Nature, I was having such a perfect, beautiful stock market. You messed it up. She's going to do whatever chemistry, biology, and physics dictate. And she always bats last. And she always bats a thousand. So do not mess with Mother Nature. And that's just what Trump was doing. So Trump has no respect for the natural world. He is obsessed with markets. And the reason we, we delayed so long is that he was viewing everything through the prism of the market. So if the market went up, he thought his coronavirus policy was working. Um, and that's why you saw him actually um, uh, on, on March, uh, let's see, it was March 10th. Um, when the stock market bounced back from a huge drop the day before, he actually took a chart of the market comeback, autographed it, and sent it to Lou Dobbs on Fox News Business News. And Dobbs, knucklehead that he is, actually showed it on the air. Okay? Trump taking credit for shaping the market. So he thought if the market was going up, he was, he was doing the right thing. While he was doing that, we now know Mother Nature was silently, relentlessly, quietly, mercilessly, and exponentially spreading the virus around the country. So the idea that we would have a president who does not believe in, in the science administered him, delivered to him by his own administration on climate change is reason enough for impeachment. Because remember, climate change has one big difference from pandemics. Climate change doesn't peak. Once the Antarctic and Greenland ice shelves melt, they're gone. They no longer will reflect the sun. Uh, they'll absorb the sun. They will expand and raise and heat the oceans. And we will then live with the implications of that forever. So um, if we have four more years of this kind of craziness, um, uh, we are just inviting a pandemic forever. And there's, there's, there's no herd immunity for climate change. There's just a relentless hammering of the herd. 
And that's what he is inviting. What, one last question, and then I'm going to turn things back to Warwick to ask uh, of the audience, uh, to present audience questions. We, given the enormous hardship that Americans are feeling, you talked about the unemployment numbers and they're going to get even worse. We are now experiencing a, if you will, a temporary safety net like the United States has never had before. What do you think attitudes will be toward safety net kind of policies? Uh, how do you think, if at all, attitudes might change from a notion that government is the problem to government is the solution? Do, do you think those that will see something after the urgency of the crisis uh, that, that, that emanates from an acceptance now in this extreme crisis of the kinds of things that never could have been enacted in normal times? You know, as I was walking on my daily walk this morning, Elliot, I was thinking of Grover Norquist and his uh, famous statement, the anti-tax guy, that he wanted to get government down small enough so he could drown it in his bathtub. Um, I'm just going to not say what I really think of that guy. Um, but uh, there are people, there was a trend um, within the Republican Party. By the way, you know, Reagan was, and Thatcher, they were all, you know, people who wanted to get government down. Um, but, um, uh, and George W. Bush. But um, they appointed excellent people. They may have wanted to get the size of government down, to deregulate, to get it out of markets. But they treated governing seriously. Do you know who the director of national intelligence is today? The director of our, our senior director, our, our senior intelligence official is the former spokesman for the UN mission, US UN mission in New York, um, uh, who then Trump made ambassador to Germany where he was a towering failure. That is our director of national intelligence. And all of that so matters today. The quality of your state, the quality of your expertise. You know, I covered Obama's dealing of the Ebola crisis. That was the deep state in action. It was a president who believed in science, who could coordinate the diplomats and the military. I think it was actually Obama's greatest foreign policy achievement, and he never got any credit for it because it succeeded. Hmm. Okay. And so uh, Trump's not going to have to worry about that here. There's going to be a lot of questioning. But... Um, you, we so need the A team here, but we also obviously need governance. And it's a question, Elliot, how how this is interpreted. You, you still have people like Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity out there, you know, um, spewing their venom afterwards. If they, if Fox decides, if the Murdoch family decides they're against big government, um, they can mess up the brains of a lot of people uh, on that subject. So I wish I could say, boy, we're all going to draw the right conclusions here from this. But I gave up believing that a long time ago. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. Thanks for listening. How do we process the unprecedented? A new video series from the Aspen Institute, One Day at a Time, highlights the little stuff, bigger stuff, and unimaginable during the COVID-19 pandemic. In the comfort or discomfort of their homes, our guests unpack how isolation is changing them. In the debut episode, food writer Corby Kummer catches up with restaurateur and food activist Marcus Samuelson. Worldwide, we're operating in eight countries, 30 restaurants. We had to, in three days, shut all of them down. And you start to realize how 
exposed you are in your professional life, which essentially then deals with your personal life, right? Samuelson owns restaurants across the world. He's an Ethiopian-born, Swedish-raised, French-trained chef. Kummer directs the Aspen Institute's Food and Society program. The conversation will be available on the Aspen Institute's website on Thursday. Look for it at aspeninstitute.org. Let's return to our featured conversation. Here's moderator Elliot Gerson. Tom, let's go back to American politics uh, for a second again. Um, you know, one of the key features of American government is federalism, and we have seen uh, real challenges to federalism during this crisis, and its strengths and its weaknesses have been uh, laid bare. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, almost open uh, warfare between the president and governors until some governors realize that they have to uh, uh, be as generous as possible or they may not get the help they need for their states. We've seen in some states uh, significant friction between mayors and governors. Uh, we've seen how we are just not organized in ways to manage what is a national, indeed a global crisis in a crisp and efficient fashion. Can you comment a little bit about federalism and how it's being uh, experienced and what the implications may be going forward? So, you know, um, obviously we can't do things the way China does top down, um, but we need to have the same outcomes. And so when you can't order things top down, but you have a federal system, what it requires, therefore, Elliot, is extraordinary leadership. Um, so you, you would have uh, you would have hoped, you know, that uh, the president would have on day one, two months ago, set up two committees. One is a literally 50 state um, war room where every governor uh, is in the same room with FEMA, the CDC, you know, and, and that that basically becomes the, the venue for all decisions about where materials go, also exchanging of information, what's working, rather than the governor of Michigan calling the governor of Maryland, how are you doing, you know, you would have that group. And next to it, in another room, you'd have a G20 group, um, where the G20 would be having, everyone would have a representative sharing the same kind of information, trying to coordinate so we don't have a global fight. Canada's prime minister just an hour ago said, hey, I think some of our ventilators were diverted from here to New York. I mean, uh, and so if we don't organize that, nobody organizes it and you get this kind of uh, sort of chaotic response. So federalism is a great system for many things. It's not great for a crisis like this, absent really smart, far-reaching, firm leadership. Um, you know, the president gave a two-hour briefing the other night. I mean, that's, that's madness. Um, he should be back being briefed running the, the coordination between the time he had to be briefed for the briefing and the time then he briefed. You're talking about at least three hours. Mm -hmm. That's madness. Let, let's, let's stay talking about the media for just a minute. You made a reference. You've made a few references to it already. You've talked about the presidential press conferences. There's now a debate about whether they should even be covered in full. Are they more like the, you know, pep rallies, uh, political rallies, than they are really conveying critical news? How, how 
how do you think the media is doing? What kind of report card would you give to the media generally or specific segments of this during this period? Your columns are probably being read now by more people than ever before in history. But well, yeah, yeah, no question. The New York Times, uh, all the trusted media, um, whether it's the Atlantic or the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, um, in terms of news, uh, Reuters, AP, I mean, all of them, um, people are craving navigation right now. They're, they're craving facts, you know. Um, and I, I think the media, under the circumstances, the, the mainstream media has done a fantastic job. Um, I'm so proud of my own newspaper, but I'm proud of all my colleagues. I'm uh, we're, we're, we're doing it and under really adverse circumstances. We, we've got reporters going into emergency wards and hospitals and cities and exposing themselves or living in. Uh, I, I wrote my colleague Alyssa Rubin the other day. She's in Baghdad writing about how there's basically no healthcare system. And I just said uh, how much I admire you for for being there, you know, um, and, and telling that story, which is a vitally important story. So, yeah, our media has, has, has never been more important. I, I believe it's functioning, you know, amazingly under the crisis. And you know, obviously, um, you know, there'll, there'll be a reckoning with Fox News um, and some of their uh, personalities, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. Um, uh, and you can already see it happening. Um, uh, and with the Murdochs, um, what they enabled, um, uh, how it slowed us down early on. And um, uh, there'll, there'll be a reckoning, but I'll, I'll leave that to the media critics. Uh, let's go back to, to uh, uh the rise of autocrats. We've seen that even before the crisis. And we now look at different autocrats operating in different ways. And there are degrees of autocracy. Uh, you know, the, the Singapore is a kind of autocracy and seem to have managed this crisis perhaps as well or better than anyone else. Then you contrast that with, say, what we're seeing in Brazil. Uh, in, in Hungary, uh, we have a situation now where, you know, it no longer may be a democracy at all. Of course, what he wants is an illiberal democracy, yeah. but just be an illiberal autocracy. How, how do you see this playing out? I well, mean, you know, I, would be care I would say to the Orbans of the world, you know, and, and the autocrats who want to take advantage of this, be careful what you wish for, because this is a crisis that could be so difficult and overwhelming. Uh, once you assume all power, you assume all responsibility. Now, some of them will obviously use this moment to externalize that responsibility, find a foreign enemy, an enemy next door. But um, it's going to be more and more difficult. This is such an all-encompassing um, uh, crisis that I think it's the countries that build broad coalitions, uh, bring everybody together um, the way Israel chose to do, the way um, uh, I'm, I'm arguing that we should do. Uh, I think those countries will be built to last because um, you can't suppress the information about this pandemic. You know, governments are not used to Elliot, dealing with Mother Nature, who has her wonderful sides, too. I look out on my lawn it's because of climate change. All the cherry trees are already out, you know, um, but because uh, you can leverage chemistry, biology and physics in wonderful ways as well. But it's not like fighting a human enemy. You know, uh, uh, she is relentless. Um, and um, uh, she, she, um, she just keeps coming at you until the physics, biology, and chemistry change. So she really doesn't care about your politics. Uh, she doesn't open at 9.30 in the morning, close at 4, take weekends off. And that kind of enemy, unless you are leveraging the right physics, biology, and chemistry to tilt her the other way, 
through vaccines and through um, uh, cures and uh, militarized drugs, um, she's going to she's going to run you over. And um, uh, so these people who are reaching for authority right now, um, I think they have no idea what they're up against. Well, let's talk about the the divides in the United States a little bit and cultural trends. I mean, obviously, we have an urban-rural divide that manifests itself politically and culturally and socially in other ways. And for a while now, it almost seems that this crisis may be if anything, exacerbating it. I mean, we have situations where, where in in Seattle, uh, you know, people don't move more than sixty meters or whatever. I, I I read today. Whereas in Wyoming and other parts of the country, they're still traveling great distances. It was just today that the Florida governor finally put some statewide policies in fe- in effect. Do you see, given the fact that this virus is not a Republican virus, it's not a Democratic virus, it's not an urban virus, it's not a rural virus, it affects everybody. Isn't it possible that this could, I mean, there's both an optimistic way that this could, you know, create new unity or it could exacerbate it. Where do you come out on that? Yeah, well, you know, here's a newsflash. Mother Nature does not recognize the border between Florida and Georgia, you know, and um uh, and so uh, what the governor of Florida was doing was utterly reckless because this virus will come for everybody. By the way, it'll come for the panhandle. It'll come for central Georgia. I'm from Minnesota. And, and I was talking to Mike Osterholm, one of our great epidemiologists at the University of Minnesota. He was making this point. It doesn't care about blue states, red states. It starts in urban areas because they're denser and more globally connected. But then it just goes out from there. And so um, eventually, it, it you know unless you're sheltering in place and doing the proper things, it will come for everybody. And, um, uh, you know, the governor of Georgia today made the most remarkable statement. He said only yesterday did he understand that people who um, uh, actually carried the disease could be immune um, and carrying it and actually convey it um, and shed it to others. Now, that would be a remarkable statement from any governor today, okay, because Fauci's been talking about this for a month. But the governor of Georgia, where the CDC is headquartered, for him to make that statement is, it's really scary. But it shows you that, again, when the tide goes out, Elliot, you see who's not wearing a bathing suit. And you see which governor is a, is a blithering moron. And um, I, I fear for people who are living in states. I'm blessed. Larry Hogan, our Republican governor, is just done an excellent job. And in Montgomery County, where I live, our, our local county, excellent job. The governor, Mike DeWine of, of Ohio, I think he'll be hailed as a hero when this is over. And these other knuckleheads who, who think that, um, you know, because the numbers are what they are today, that that's how it's going to be. And it's static and it would never come across the Texas-Oklahoma border. You know, it's, it's what you get when you impugn science for so many years and you impugn expertise. You get knuckleheads. And now it's lethal. Well, you brought up the topic of uh, the presidential election indirectly by making a vice presidential selection, a, a suggestion. Um, let me ask some questions about that. I mean, uh, are you concerned about how this election is going to be able to be conducted uh, in November? What should we be doing about assuring not just dealing with the cyber threats and 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 the other technological uh, challenges to the integrity of it. What if what if uh, nightmare continues 
And no one wants to stand in line to vote in November. What should we be thinking about? It's a huge problem, uh, especially if the virus gets suppressed during the summer, uh, both by what we're doing and by um, reasons of temperature. And I don't know that it will. I know there's a lot of division on that. Um, but then comes back in the fall. Um, and we still don't have a vaccine. That's why we need a vaccine so badly. And absent that, we need technological bridges um, that will uh, enable people to feel comfortable going out. But um, I, I'm i worried about so many things like right now <laughs> that I, I, I can't quite get to November yet. I'm, I'm just worried about mass unemployment and what that will mean for people's lives, their, their savings, their hopes, and their futures. And that's what's really beyond people are sitting in hospitals right now who are clinging to life, you know, and um, I just can't reach that far right now. No, I think it's hard for all of us too, but we 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 still yeah, think about somebody is. We still think about the election, and 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 we have to think about it. Um, many people have commented on, and and you brought up uh, the president. I wasn't going to. Many people have commented, uh, including himself, on uh, the polls and 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 his 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 apparent bump in popularity. Although the polls are somewhat inconsistent there. Uh, how do you interpret that? I mean, how significant is it? And then, you know, we can remember that, you know, George Bush's numbers went up over 90% after 9-11. And I think his father's number went up over 90%, uh, you know, at the start of the uh, Iraqi war. And of course, he lost a few months later. How do you, with your perspective, view you know, the natural, we all want to rally around the president. How do we, how should we interpret those yeah. numbers. The, the remarkable thing is how low they are, not how high they are, um, because the natural human instinct is to not only rally around your leader, but want to believe that he or she knows what what they're doing. And um, so this doesn't surprise me. Um, look, I, I, I wrote this when I wrote a, my own open letter to the president. I'm rooting for him to succeed. You know, I, I, it's never good politics to hope that your party wins only if the country fails. So um, I'd rather compete against Trump if I were a Democratic candidate on something other than you, you led us into the Great Depression, frankly. So I'm, I'm rooting for him to succeed and let's argue about other things later. Um, and that's why I try to be, I don't spend a lot of time in my column uh, attacking him. I, I, I'm trying to be more constructive, uh, as constructive as I can, only because I'm, I'm as terrified as anybody about what this can mean uh, to the future of this great country. This is a once in a century event. And um, uh, uh, this is not a time I'm I'm playing politics. It's why I'm calling for a national unity government. You know when it's uh, to lead us out of it. You are renowned for your crystal ball in not just political context but cultural, social ones as well. What kinds of uh, again? It's too early in this, and we're still sort of in shock and denial about how long we may be hunkered down in this position. But do you have any sense of some of the things that we are now doing that, you know, that might not change in terms of, uh, I mean, are we all going to be washing our hands in different ways and constantly in the future? Are we not going to, are our European friends not going to be kiss cheeking, you know, uh, you know, yeah. kissing each other's cheeks? Uh, but, you know, none of those are maybe trivial examples, but what kinds of, of just social interchange are, 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 is going to be different going forward. You know, one of the things I've learned the hard way, Elliot, is um, uh, never say things will never be the same. Uh, 
And um, I've, I've made that mistake. I've, and, uh, and if I've done it even in this conversation, I, 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 I take it back. Uh, the reason I say that is I've been reading a lot about the 1918 pandemic. And um, Anne sent me, my wife sent me a uh, story about Minneapolis and St. Paul in the 1918 pandemic and how, um, how each city took a slightly different approach to it. Um, but um, uh, uh, all the issues were exactly the same. But we came out of that pandemic. Uh, we had a, an amazing century interrupted by a terrible world war, but uh, the world globalized. It continued to, to be knitted together. Our country grew and um, so much depends on how long this lasts and how we navigate our way out of it. And I'm, I'm hoping for the best. Well, you mentioned a vaccine, and we're all hoping for a vaccine. Your hope for one before November, unfortunately, is a minority hope at the moment. Yeah. Most most, uh, most scientists are saying it's more likely to be 18 months or maybe at least a year. Uh, but there's let's let's imagine we have a vaccine. You know, this is a global crisis. You know, and we're talking about billions of people. Uh, what is the proper way for governing institutions to think about how to deal with that and how to equitably make it available. Well, that's why it's got to be done like through some kind of global committee um, because uh, first of all, you know, we don't make vaccines in this country, the raw materials for them. So I think very few, we, we, we people don't realize we will be in line um, uh, even if it's one of our companies because the raw materials are actually not, uh, as I understand it, um, for the most part, made here. Um, again, that's where U.S. leadership really matters. How we apportion this out. Um, uh, you know, you had Trump early on telling a German company, "I want you to come here and have the vaccine done here, so we get it all." That's just not gonna. That's not. A, that's not gonna work. And so, um, it's why we need this bridge to a vaccine, and why we need some kind of global coordination, um, uh, and that'd be done in some equitable basis. Thomas Friedman is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who writes a regular column in the New York Times. His latest book is Thank You for Being Late, Thriving in the Age of Accelerations. Elliot Gerson is an executive vice president at the Aspen Institute. He oversees the Institute's policy programs, public programs, and international partners. Their conversation was initially held for Society of Fellows members on April 2nd. The Society of Fellows is a national community of leaders who sustain and support the Aspen Institute. To view a video of the original conversation, hear more like it, and learn about SOF, go to aspeninstitute.org SOF. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, and sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.